word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. We'll be reading chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace that always work in the hearts of those who believe. We thank you for this great passage, this man having his eyes opened, but much more than that going on. Lord, as we peer into this, we ask, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, that we would behold Jesus, that we would behold his power, that we behold his work, that we would behold your purposes and what you are doing in redemption through this man's story. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you that you would not leave us to grope around in the dark, but you gave us your word as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And it reveals to us who you are and how you are operating. We're so grateful, Father, to be able to love you and serve you and know you in this way. So I ask, Lord, as we work through this passage, as we behold what Christ has done, that your grace would go forth and be working in the hearts of those who believe and in the hearts of those who have not yet seen Jesus. Lord, would you do that faithful work today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be back with you again. Well, as we continue on in this, this beautiful story that we've been looking at, we are actually going to cover the rest of the story today. I just didn't want to read all the way to verse 41, but we're going to read that text as we, as we work through it. As I said last week, this story is really meant to be seen as, as a unit, uh, to understand Jesus' final point in verse 39. And there we, we see, as we often see and talk about in Scripture, Jesus divides the world into two categories of people. There's only two types of people in this world according to what Jesus says. And in this context, they are those who, are, who were blind but now can see, and then there are those who think they can see but are actually blind. And the fact is, because of sin... We live in a world where everyone is born blind. In our natural state, we, we cannot see. We cannot understand this world. We cannot understand ourselves. And we cannot understand God rightly. And it is for that reason that we need light outside of ourselves in order for us to see. We need our eyes to be opened to see and understand the truth. Otherwise, we are just groping around in the darkness of our sin, as the world is doing every day. But this, this is why Jesus came. This is why He is the light of the world, as we will see very clearly today in this passage. Last week, we began the story, and we only got to verse 5, and we did that not only because these opening verses frame the story but also because they present a massive theological truth that we needed to spend time on considering. And that is, that is God's sovereignty over suffering. And when the disciples asked the question of why was this man born blind, 
they assumed it to be either the direct result of his sin or the direct result of his parents' sin. But Jesus replies that it was neither of those things. Rather, this man's plight was for the purpose of God's glory. It was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And those works are a lot more than, than merely the healing miracle that takes place in his life. Jesus is, is chiefly talking about his saving work as the light of the world, as he reveals himself to his people. And the reality is, for this guy and for all who believe, Everything we go through in this life is working both to draw us to Jesus and to conform us to Jesus. Our trials are ordained by God for our eternal good. That's what we see quite clearly in this man's life. And now, as we look at the rest of the story, we're going to see this truth played out in his story, in his life, in his experience. Keep in mind, his physical experience is a picture of what takes place in the heart of everyone who believes in Christ. So as we walk through the rest of the story, there's, there are three main sections that we're going to work through. The healing itself, the, the trial, and then the concluding results, the ending results of all of this, the purpose of it all. And in each section, we see an actual progression of spiritual sight in this man, the man who was born blind, showing us that he was given much more than physical eyes in his encounter with Christ. And all the while, we see simultaneously the Pharisees' blindness actually growing darker and more recognizable. The entire thing is a picture of, what Jesus, of why Jesus has come and how he works in the hearts of those who believe as well as the effect he has on those who do not believe. My prayer is that we will all be encouraged by this man's story, as it is our story of the grace of God on display in our lives. So let's start working through this, starting, starting with the healing. Look, look back at verse 6 with me. It says, Having these things, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now I want us to notice the way that this healing was carried out. Jesus spit on the ground, he made mud, he put the mud on the man's eyes, and he sent them to go wash in this pool. The question is why? Why did he do it this way? I mean, we know that Jesus has all power. He's already demonstrated that in various ways throughout the gospel. In chapter 5, he commanded, he just commanded by the power of his voice, the 38-year invalid to get up, and he got up. So he most certainly could have said to this man, open your eyes, and restored his sight. But he doesn't. And we know that Jesus doesn't do anything without purpose. So what's going on here? Well, when it comes to the saliva in the mud, there's a lot of theories out there as to why he did this. Some of them may or may not be true, but I want to hit on the one that we know is, is reality for this passage. In actuality, this was a repeated method for Jesus. He, he did this a few other healings in, in the other Gospels. But in this case, I think he primarily did this to make a statement about the Sabbath and the Pharisees' understanding of things. This takes place on the Sabbath day, as John makes clear in verse 14. And the, the, the making of mud, which would include kneading, was unquestionably a violation of the oral tradition of the Pharisees. In their, their categories, they had 39 categories of forbidden work, and this violated that. And the application of saliva would be equally offensive. This was a taboo that should lead to uncleanness. But much like when Jesus reached out and touched the leper in Matthew chapter 8 and healed him, the taboo does not have the effect of uncleanness. It actually has the opposite effect of spreading cleanness. In a very real way, Jesus was intentionally being provocative 
to the religious system of the day, and thus intending that the ensuing conflict would take place. And the results of all this will have a twofold effect. Now, for those who trust in Christ, it demonstrates in their hearts that He is, in fact, the Lord of the Sabbath, that He has all authority. But for those who reject Christ, it further hardens their hearts as they chalk Him up to being a Sabbath breaker, a sinner. As the saying goes, the same sun that melts butter hardens clay. And we see that very much on effect here today. But beyond that, Jesus also then goes and sends this man to go to the the pool of Siloam. And you'll notice that John very intentionally inserts this, this parenthetical comment so that we know the meaning of this of the name of this pool. It means sent. Now, why does Jesus send him there? And why does John want us to see that it means sent? Well, this pool, Siloam, was the very same pool that was used during the water-drawing festival back in chapter 7 at the Feast of Tabernacles, if you remember that, when they would quote Isaiah 12 with regard to drawing water from the wells of salvation. It was in that context that Jesus stood up and, and said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, making the festival and its fulfillment about him. Well, now here he is sending this blind man to go wash in that very same pool, and, he, and John wants us to know that the pool's name means sent. Well, what does that point us to? It, of course, ought to point us to this word that we've heard over and over and over throughout this gospel. Jesus has been saying this over and over and over, that he is the one sent from heaven, that he is the sent one, that he is the one sent from the Father, he is the one sent from God. He has said this countless times up to this point. In fact, he just said it again in verse 4. He said, we must work the works of him who sent me. The idea here. I believe, is, is pointing to the cleansing power of Christ, of the sent one. For those who find refuge in Him, they are cleansed. We are cleansed in Christ. We are washed by His blood. We are those who are given eyes to see and are experiencing the waters of salvation. The physical washing that leads to this man's physical sight points to the spiritual washing of regeneration that leads to spiritual sight for all who believe. That's what's going on here. And as we will see, this man's experience is much more than just a physical washing and physical healing. It's about way more than that for even him. In fact, look how anticlimactic the physical healing really is in the story. John just includes it here at the end of verse 7. He says, So he went and washed and came back seeing. What? This guy was blind from birth. And the actual fact of the moment of his eyes being open receives only this pithy statement? Because it's not the point. It is a sign, not the purpose. It is a pointer. It is not the point. But this guy, he does exactly as Christ told him, and he comes back seeing which, of course, has a a massive effect on those who know him. Look at verses 8 through 12. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some of them said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus. And made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I I do not know. After he he comes back seeing, the people who knew him, his his neighbors and those who had seen him as a beggar, were were rightly struggling to believe their, their own eyes at this point. This is a man who they have seen probably for years blind and begging. And yet here he is walking around like normal, like everyone else, able to see. And they, they even start a debate. Is it, is it really him? Maybe it's just a guy who looks like him and he has to clear it up. No, no, it's, it's me. 
It's really me. And upon asking him how his eyes were open, this man kind of reveals where he's at at this point, what his level of understanding is. He simply says, the man called Jesus. Now at this point, he obviously doesn't understand a whole lot about Jesus, but he at least knows who did it. Which stands in stark contrast to what we saw back in chapter 5. In that instance, the man was sitting there, the 38-year invalid was sitting by the pool of Bethesda because his faith was in a superstitious pool. And in that case, rather than using the pool or any kind of, of external means for obvious reasons, Christ just tells the man to get up and walk. And the man did. He got up and he walked away. And when asked about it, he didn't even know Jesus' name. He hadn't even bothered to hang around and ask. He was, he was undeniably healed by the power of Jesus' command, his voice, on the spot, and he just walks away. He doesn't even know his name. But here, this man, still to this point, has never even seen Jesus. He was healed indirectly through Jesus' instructions to go and wash, and he doesn't superstitiously give credit to the pool or any other of the employed means, but rather to the man called Jesus, who he has never seen, and he doesn't know, and he doesn't even know how to find him. So he doesn't know much, but he knows where the source of power was. It was in the man called Jesus. And the people want to know, where, where is he? They want to see this man who opened his eyes. They didn't know where to find him, and, and neither did the healed man. And so look what happens. Look at verse 13. It says, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, we don't really know what their motives here were in bringing him to the Pharisees. They were likely just looking for a religious explanation of this miracle. What, what does this tell us about this man, Jesus? And they went to their religious leaders to, to hear what they would say about all of this. Likely, they did not know nor expect that their actions would actually lead to this man's trial. So we shouldn't impute any kind of motives along those lines to them, but it certainly does. They bring him in just looking for an answer, and this man gets placed upon trial. In verses 14 through 34, are this man's trial before these religious authorities, the Pharisees? And there's really three stages to this trial. There is the first interrogation of the man, and then there is the calling of witnesses. And then the last stage is the second interrogation with a final verdict. But it all begins right here in, in verse 14. Look with me now at the beginning of this trial in verse 14. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Now, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. So just like back in chapter 5, the Pharisees are more concerned with the fact that According to their conception of things and their traditions, Jesus broke the Sabbath. They're more concerned about that than they are amazed that this man can see. And, and you see John here making sure that the readers understand this took place on the Sabbath. Jesus did this on purpose. He most certainly could have healed this man on Friday, or he could have healed him on Sunday, but he chose to do this great work on Saturday, on their Sabbath for this reason, to provoke this response, putting the hypocrisy of his opponents on display. And though they had no doubt had heard the story from the people who brought him in, they wanted to hear it again from this man's own words. And notice, there's actually two people on trial here. Both the man who is being questioned, the formerly blind man, and the man who is in question, which is Jesus. And that is the, the bigger issue that is at play. 
In some ways, this man's trial is a bit of a proxy war for the bigger cosmological battle that is going on of light versus darkness all through this gospel. These religious authorities are seeking to make judgments on this man in order to make judgments upon Jesus. But I love how matter-of-fact this guy is with these leaders. In answer to their question, he, he simply says, well, well, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. That's what happened. What more do you want me to say? These are the facts. He's not shrinking back or, or trying to shift the focus. He's just, he's just laying it out. This is what happened. And as a result of, of his testimony, a division forms among the leaders about Jesus, the real man who's in question. Some say Jesus cannot be from God because he's a Sabbath breaker. He did this on the Sabbath. And others say, well, how can he be a sinner, a Sabbath breaker, if he does such signs? Some of them at least are confused. And in that disagreement, they put the question to the man. He opened your eyes. What do you say about him? Now, this, this was not meant to be as a simple, hey, we would like your opinion on this matter. Uh, this, this, they weren't asking him just to weigh in. This was an attempt at compelled compliance. There is intimidation here. They likely wanted the man in question to condemn Jesus' actions in line with their traditions. They're trying to, to force a reply of, of, yes, he broke the Sabbath. He is a Sabbath breaker. But to their chagrin, this man does not give them the reply that they were hoping for. And I, I get the impression that the way this, this guy handles this entire thing, that there's, just, there's no hesitation on his part. He just immediately replies with, he is a prophet. Now that's not wrong. Certainly Jesus was, was more than that. He was more than a prophet, but he wasn't less than that. He was a prophet. He was the prophet greater than Moses, as prophesied by Deuteronomy 18. Now this man probably doesn't understand all of this at this point, but you're starting to see some development here. He has gone from just the man called Jesus to he is a prophet. He's actively working through what he believes about Jesus and his conception of him is growing. His sight is getting clear. But for the Pharisees, they do not have a consensus. So to address this division and this confusion, the interrogators decide to go after the truthfulness of this man's testimony. And they, they simply don't believe him. And to do that, they call in witnesses. Witnesses that they're hoping would not corroborate, but hopefully disprove his testimony. Look at verse 18. It says, The Jews do not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now, this section gives you an idea of how intense this questioning really was. This was not a casual curiosity on display. This is, an, in fact, an intimidating court scene. This is a trial with very real and severe consequences on the line. The Jews subpoena this man's parents, no doubt sending out officials to locate them and bring them in for questioning demonstrating the power they had in this investigation. They are the societal authorities in this society, leveraging their power for this case. And the parents come in just gripped with fear. And they ask them two questions. Is this your son who you say was born blind? And how then does he now see? Now the first question they can easily testify to the truthfulness of. I mean, they must. This is reality. That is their son, who was indeed born blind. Not much else to say about that. And the Pharisees were 
hoping that that was not true, that they would disprove that, that they could just move on from the base facts of this case, walk away from this whole fiasco, saying to the people who brought him in that it was a farce. Move on. Jesus is a charlatan, and we will deal with him. But the parents affirm that the son indeed was born blind. And because of that reality, and he is now here indeed with his eyes open, the second question is far more consequential. How then does he now see? And here, sadly, the parents cave to their fears. They say they don't know how he sees, and they don't know who opened his eyes, which John lets us know was not true. John inserts that they answered this way. They said this out of fear, not out of ignorance. They knew. They had heard. And what is worse is very intentionally they create a legal separation between themselves and their son. They insist, he is of age. You should ask him. That was, that was legal language. He's old enough to give testimony and stand trial on his own. Ask him. He's an adult. We are not responsible for this. Now, while I think this is a sad turn of events, to be sure, I don't think John's purpose for including this was just to merely shame these parents. Rather, it was to illustrate the severity of this situation. These parents were, were absolutely gripped with fear. Why? Well, because they had already agreed upon, it was already known at this point in the game, that if anyone confesses Jesus as Christ, they would be put out of the synagogue. Notice John uses the word already there. They had already come to this conclusion. He's writing to an audience after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This was a widely known consequence at that time. Jews persecuted and expelled the Christians after the resurrection and the birth of the church quite frequently. See the book of Acts. But John is telling his readers that even before the cross, this was already a reality. Those who confessed Christ were put out of the synagogue. And the, that ramification in this society is, is hard for us as 21st century Americans to conceptualize. Especially before the church was born. Because this was not a society that attempted to separate their, their politics and their religion, or their religion from the rest of life, like ours attempts to do. This was a religious society. The, the societal leaders were religious leaders. To be put out of the synagogue was not like losing your privilege to come to church, and, but to live your, the rest of your life as normal. It was to make you a social pariah. It was to lose your relationships. It was even to lose the way you functioned in the community. It would affect every part of your life. This was a terrifying threat that was upon these parents. And in the face of that threat, they caved to their fears. And they separated themselves from the situation and from their own son. Ask him. He is of age. But all this goes to show really, this highlights this man's courage. The same threats were upon him, and he knew it. Yet there was something else that he knew. It was far more powerful for him. And he states what that is in this third stage of the trial. Let's look now as the attention of the Pharisees returns for a second round of interrogation. Look at verse 24. It says, So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and he said to him, they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So now they, they bring the, mat, the man back in, and you will notice that they have, they have changed their focus. They have changed their tactic here. Their real motives are coming out. They can't discredit the miracle anymore, so they are just dead set on discrediting Jesus, which is what they're after anyway. Now, this, this language from the Pharisees, when they said, give glory to God, is not them telling this man to, to praise God or anything of that sort. It is rather a sharp exhortation to tell the truth. It's more akin to putting one under oath. 
Now, the same language was used by Joshua in Joshua chapter 7 when he was interrogating Achan uh, for stealing the spoils of war against the Lord's command. Give glory to God. Tell us what you have done. Same thing going on here. The Pharisees are desperately hoping that this man was hiding some detail that will confirm their accusations that Jesus is a sinner. They want him to admit that Jesus was a transgressor of the law, of their traditions. Of their, and their traditions, as they viewed them, the oral law was just as binding as the written code. But while, while this man doesn't know much, in the face of, of their hostility and this intimidation, he gives them one of the most beautiful replies that he possibly could have in this situation. Look at verse 25. Whether he is a sinner, I, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. He basically says, look, you, you guys are the experts on the law. I don't know how to answer your question. I can't evaluate this. I, I don't know. But here's what I do know. I was blind. My whole life I was blind, and I can see. How do you argue with that? You know, these words have become in history a repeated testimony of the saints throughout the ages because this is true for all of us. When one is born again, when one has had their eyes open, they may not know much at the beginning of their walk. They may not be able to define the nature of the Trinity or the two natures of Christ or the intricacies of the new covenant, but they know this, I was blind and now I see. The man called Jesus opened my eyes. This guy is giving physical expression to what every Christian experiences on a spiritual level. He doesn't have all the answers, but he knows what Jesus did for him. He knows what happened to him, and he just confidently falls back on that reality. The power of one's testimony on display. And you can just, you can just feel the frustration of these Jews. They have got nothing else to say at this point. And so they ask him the very same question that they started with. They go back to the beginning. Verse 26. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? They're so mad. I mean, this man can see, and they're mad about it. They had all the evidence they needed. They had the testimony of the people. They had this guy's testimony. They had his parents' testimony. They simply refused to see the implications of all of this. They were blind and deaf to the truth that was right in front of them. And this guy calls them out on it. Look at verse 27. He answered, I have, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Ooh, he's getting bold. And he struck a nerve. Not only does he refuse to play their game anymore, he doesn't answer their question, but he also he rebukes them for not listening the first time. And then he asks them what he knew was the very opposite of their desires. They were condemning Christ as a sinner. He, he knew they didn't want to become his disciples, yet he asked them anyway. He's just being provocative. This guy seems fearless in the face of these authorities. Why do you think that is? You think it's just because he's a tough guy? No. It's because the Spirit of God is at work in his heart. This is supernatural courage. The Father is doing his drawing work because this is one of Christ's sheep. Notice carefully what he said, though. This question has a point. He put his cards on the table with this question. He said, do you also want to become his disciples? He said this because the implication is he was already there. Though he had not seen him, he believed him. Though he knew very little, he already considered himself one of his disciples. And this question just sent them over the edge. Nothing could be more offensive to these self-righteous Pharisees who for them, they only ever wanted to boast in their following of, of Moses. Look at what they say, verse 28. Then they reviled him, saying, 
You are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The gloves are coming off at this point. They're, they're, not even, they're not even trying to have a civil investigation anymore because they cannot contain their hatred for Christ, their hatred for the light. The darkness hates the light. And because of that, they resort now to reviling this man. And they're boasting, we are disciples of Moses. You can just hear the pride in this statement. As great as Moses was, their boasting in Moses was actually self-condemnation. Jesus made this clear back in chapter 5. Chapter 5, he said, If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And the reality is, as Jesus says, everyone who boasts in Moses, apart from Jesus, will find that Moses will be their chief accuser on the day of judgment. For the law of Moses points to Christ, and it condemns everyone outside of Christ. But the greatest irony of their statement is actually seen when we remember that we're coming out of John chapter 8. Right here they say, we know that God has spoken to Moses. Well, yeah, that's true. God did speak to Moses. But the God who had spoken to Moses was the great I Am. That's the very one they're condemning. It is the Christ who just said in the previous chapter, the last words of the last chapter, before Abraham was, I am. It was the pre-incarnate Christ in the bush who spoke to Moses. And they have no idea who they're dealing with. But now at least they admit that they don't know where Jesus comes from. At one point, they thought they did back in chapter 7, but with everything that Jesus did and said in, in chapter 7 and 8, they're, they're confused on that point now. They don't know where he comes from. But yet they have the audacity to say that they know, without a shadow of a doubt, that he's a sinner. So the blindness of the Pharisees is now on full display as they confidently condemn the very God that they claim to follow. This guy does not back down. Now, on the contrary, he ramps it up for his final response. Look at verse 30. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now remember, keep this in perspective, this is a man who has spent his entire life as a blind beggar. He's uneducated. He has no status in society. And he has seen the world for less than 24 hours. And here he is confounding the highest religious minds in the country. And in, in conclusion to this whole fiasco, what amazes him is their blindness. He is astounded that they cannot see what he so easily and clearly can see. I mean, he is, he is marveling that they are not coming to the same conclusion that he is. This is an amazing thing. But they're not coming to the conclusion that Jesus is from God. It's so obvious to anyone with eyes to see. And he just explains it all with simple logic. Everything he says here is true. He says, we know that God does not listen to sinners. First of all, notice he's using their same language back against them at this point. They keep making their, their very bold declarations, starting with, we know, we know this man is a sinner. We know God has spoken to Moses. And he just comes back over the top of them with their own language, speaking about what they actually do know from Scripture. God does not listen to sinners. And by this, he's not saying that God cannot hear sinners, but that God does not heed the prayer of those who live in rebellion to him. Not only is that common sense, but that is what the Old Testament teaches. Proverbs 15, 29, The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayers of the righteous. 
And as this man rightly says, God listens to those who truly worship Him and do His will. A point firmly affirmed in Scripture and by reason. And then he, he presses the point home. He says, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And that was absolutely true. The Old Testament incident of God opening eyes were the eyes of his enemies that he had just previously blinded. He blinded them and then opened their eyes. No one born blind had experienced this miracle. This is a massive miracle that has taken place. And in fact, whether or not this man knew it, the Pharisees most certainly knew it, that Isaiah repeatedly prophesied that the coming Messiah would do this very thing, that he would open the eyes of the blind. One, one passage, Isaiah 42, 7. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. That is the coming Messiah's work. This was a miracle that reveals who Christ is as the Messiah sent from God as a light to open blind eyes. The Pharisees refused to see it. This man didn't have all the pieces put together, but he knew this. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. In other words, said positively, he is confessing in the face of these hostile authorities that he believed that Jesus is from God. Don't you just love this guy? I mean, how different is he than many others we've seen in the Gospel of John? Even than his parents, who were just controlled by their fears, or from Nicodemus, who came by night because he feared his colleagues, or most starkly from the man in John 5 who was healed by Jesus, who blamed Jesus and later reported him to the authorities in order to avoid trouble from the Jews. This man was different than all of them because something greater had happened inside of him. And though he was, a, he was a nobody in this world, we don't, we don't even know his name. He is a supreme example of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, that God has chosen what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. He absolutely shamed these Jews. And you can tell that by their reaction. Look at verse 34. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. They can't refute what he said, so they just resort to insult. This is called ad hominem. It's when you attack the man rather than the argument. In exact contradiction to what Jesus said at the very beginning, they declare him to be born in utter sin and thus imply that they were not. And they issue their verdict by casting him out. He is literally now an outcast. He didn't get to live a normal life very long. He was already an outcast by his disability, but now he is an outcast by his profession. His, his days of hardship, unfortunately, were not over. They just changed in form. But he knew this was coming. As John made it clear, this threat was already widely known. But this man had counted the cost. And he was willing to lose everything for what he knew to be true. He was not going to back down from what he could see, not with his, his physical eyes, but for what he could see with the eyes of his heart. Was it worth it? Absolutely. As Jesus said in, in, in Luke's Gospel, in the context of speaking about governmental persecution and being dragged before Authorities, Jesus said this, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. It was absolutely worth it. All of his hardships have been worth it. And look what happens at the conclusion of it all. Look what Jesus does now as he steps back into the scene, into the picture in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? 
And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus here shows himself to be the good shepherd right before he declares himself to be the good shepherd in John chapter 10. He is the shepherd who goes after his sheep. After this man was cast out, Jesus went and found him because he will not lose one of his own. He will gather in all that the Father has given him. And though this man had not yet seen him, and he didn't know who it was when Jesus first addressed him, as soon as Jesus told him who he was, the Son of Man, the exalted one of Daniel 7, to whom belongs the glory and the kingdom, he says, Lord, I believe. And he worships. Did not take any convincing. Because as Jesus will say in chapter 10, verse 14, I know my own, and my own know me. This guy got it. By the work of the Spirit in his heart, he knew he was standing before God in the flesh. And he worships him as God. This is the only reference to the worship of Christ before the cross in this entire gospel. This man truly saw. He saw way more than his new eyes could show him. He saw the glory of Jesus, and he worshiped him. Do you realize how blasphemous this is if this man is not God? This is why Jews and Muslims believe us Christians to be blasphemous idolaters, because like this guy, we worship a man. We worship the God-man, Jesus Christ. And notice Jesus issues no correction here, but he rather validates this worship, and he condemns those who don't. Look at verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, you were blind, you would have no guilt. Now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Apparently, this conversation in worship did not take place in private. It happened in public. Likely, a few of the Pharisees were actually sent to follow this guy. But by this statement that Jesus issues to this onlooking Pharisees, he's not saying that they are not blind, but that in their pride they believe themselves to see. If they had rightly judged themselves to be blind, in darkness, in need of the light, or or said another way, if they had seen their own sin and need of a Savior, they would have no guilt, for Christ would remove it. But because they judged themselves to be those who see, to be those who can rightly assess themselves and God, their guilt remains. This is very akin to what Jesus said in Luke's gospel in chapter 5 when he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In order to embrace the good news, you you have to see that you have sin that needs forgiveness. You have to reckon with the bad news that you, in fact, are a sinner who is under the condemnation and wrath of God. You cannot repent if you don't see your own sin in need of a Savior. And these guys thought they could see, but Christ's revealing shows them that they could not see. And that is the purpose of this all. That's the entire point of this chapter. It's explained by Jesus' words in verse 39. For judgment I came into this world, That those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Why did Jesus do it the way he did it? Healing on the Sabbath, making mud, what he knew would be provocative to these Pharisees? For this reason. The same merciful actions of Christ in this healing 
that opened the spiritual eyes of the blind revealed the blinded eyes of those who claimed to see. It was simultaneously grace and judgment. And this story is a microcosm. It is an illustration of God's grand design of redemption. The incarnation and the cross are both grace and judgment. God has done things in a way to confound human wisdom and to reveal the prideful blindness of the human heart. The same means of our salvation is a means of judgment. This foreshadows the nature of the cross, the cross that becomes a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but the power of God to those who are being saved. And the only ones who can see and understand who Jesus is and the nature of the cross are those who have been given eyes to see by grace. Those who have been washed by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and had to have their eyes open to who Jesus is. They are those who Jesus sought out and opened their eyes by grace. And those who truly see it have the same reaction. They fall down and worship like this man saying, Lord, I believe. This is, this is why Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 12 that no one can truly confess Jesus as Lord except by the Spirit of God. We who worship Christ do so because He has opened our eyes by grace. Like this man's testimony, our testimony is once I was blind, but now I see. It is all of grace. And like this man, we are to never back down from the truth we can see. We live for the truth and for the worship of Christ, no matter what it may cost us in a world that cannot see what we see. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us eyes to see. We thank you that we who believe have laid hold of Christ because of the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. Because we have washed in the sent one. Because he has opened our eyes. His light that gives us the ability to see. God, I pray that we would use the grace that we have been given to proclaim this glorious light, to share this glorious light, to shine this glorious light wherever we may go. Help us to reflect Christ to this lost and dying world that is living in darkness. And Lord, whatever consequences that may bring, Lord, give us the strength and courage to stand and proclaim Christ to confess his name before men, that our name may be confessed before the angels of God. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing Amazing Grace in response.